You're listening to Digging Deep, understanding the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Sacramento District, the show that tries to simplify what the district does. So the Sacramento District is what we call full-service district. It's, it's unique in a lot of ways. Floods of record are the biggest storm you've ever seen in the recorded history of the region. I mean, the last thing you want is to have um, water starting to seep through a levee or a dam. The number one thing for us is really people. We can't get it done without our people. Welcome to Digging Deep. I'm your host, Rick Brown. On this episode... We're going to chat with Miss Rachel Oriana. Rachel is a licensed professional engineer in the state of California and is the Flood Risk Program Manager for the Sacramento District's Planning Division. She oversees the district's growing floodplain management services, including planning assistance to the states that Sacramento District supports and for the district's Silver Jackets team. And I use air quotes around Silver Jackets because we're going to get into that a whole lot more in our conversation to help you understand what that Silver Jackets program is all about. Plus, Rachel shares a must-read that she says helped set her up for a successful career in USACE. Let's get to it. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your role in USACE's Sacramento District. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm the Flood Risk Program Manager. Our uh, Flood Risk Program here in the Sacramento District, we do $13 million worth of management of a a portfolio. Um, It's about 20 to 30 projects, and we do about $2.5 to $3.5 million worth of execution per year. Um, A lot of those projects, I'd say about a third or a half, are smaller dollar value projects. Um, So typically under $150,000. They're usually 12 to 18 months. Um, and they're interagency projects. Um, so one of the things I love about being the program manager is getting to work with communities um, and prioritizing. I'm a strategic and optimization type person. So um, I love interacting with communities, hearing what their needs are, and then talking to the state and bringing all those ideas back to the state. And our Silver Jackets teams are state-led, and um, we look to the state to prioritize which efforts we work on. Um, So basically, as the flood risk program manager, I manage uh, the floodplain management services, planning assistance to states, um, and I'm the Silver Jackets team lead for California, Nevada, and Utah. And then we also provide support to Colorado, uh, Arizona, uh, Oregon, and a little piece of Wyoming, if I didn't already say that. Yeah, so let's. I want to make sure everybody has kind of a common understanding of what flood risk really means, right? Because you can't necessarily eliminate flood risk, right? That's right. So what is? how does that work? Yeah, no, that's such a good question. Um, so risk is all about the probability that something will happen times the consequence if that event were to happen. And so when we look at flood risk, it's not just about changing the likelihood that flooding would happen. It also is taking into account what would happen if that very slim chance event occurred? What would the consequence be? And so we're multiplying those two things together to really determine what the flood risk is. So we can very effectively reduce flood risk by either um, changing the probability that an event would happen, like that could be structural fixes by doing things like building a dam, building a levee, setting back levees, 
Um, but we can also very effectively uh, reduce flood risk by changing the consequences. So that could be like there's a huge community built right there in the floodplain at high risk of flooding because the flooding would happen. And maybe the flooding's even happening frequently. And uh, that community can be relocated outside of the floodplain, which would significantly decrease the consequence. And that's just one example. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of non-structural measures that often don't get highlighted. Um, things like elevating homes or dry proofing or wet proofing homes, things like you're building a casino in a floodway and maybe you just plan that the, the bottom two floors are going to be parking garage and just all concrete. So, you know, ideally you'd want to make sure all the people were out if there was going to be flooding, but then you'd minimize damage to the structure afterwards. So those are all just a few examples of flood risk. So I, I would assume then that flood risk planning, flood risk management planning I don't know if all four words are necessary there, but I, I would imagine that that goes into many, if not all, of the projects that the core is involved in. Yes, absolutely. So, how would you describe then um, how how that program supports the Sacramento District and the type of missions that that the Sacramento District conducts, kind of from a thirty thousand foot view? So, you know, really the Army Corps of Engineers mission, I, I had to look it up to prepare for this interview um, to just, you know, thinking about what exactly is at the heart and how does how does Army Corps articulate their mission? Um, so it's delivering vital engineering solutions in collaboration with our partners to secure our nation and energize our economy and reduce disaster risk. So really, this program is about reducing flood risk. So focused on that last piece, the disaster risk and decrease that. And I think, you know, I, one of the things Army Corps of Engineers is known for is these large studies that I'm thinking, you know, you may be at the back of your question there about like, you know, how does this program fit or intertwine with those large studies? So I think the, the large studies tend to be more focused on communities that have very large consequences, more expensive consequences. So you can get that national cost benefit ratio. Whereas this program is really focused on, it, it can help smaller communities where maybe that cost benefit ratio isn't there. So we fill in a gap of allowing us to collaborate through the entire flood risk management cycle with our partners and provide that opportunity to help communities that are smaller. Uh, we do a lot of support to tribes and most of the communities that we work with don't have a cost benefit ratio that would pan out to merit federal involvement, um, but we get to participate collaboratively. And, and it sounds like this is kind of what draws the line between the projects um, that you work on versus uh, what you say calls the mega projects. Yeah. So what does your program look like kind of organizationally? You know, really, there's two big pieces to the National Flood Risk Management Program organizationally. One is internal to the Army Corps of Engineers, so I'll speak to that first. But there's also a large external piece, so I'll speak to that as well. Uh, so internal to the Army Corps of Engineers, I mean, we have a large number of people that are working on projects that support the Flood Risk Management Program. But really, there's sort of six core staff um, that work on it. Most of them are in planning division, uh, but we also get some heavy support from our hydrology and hydraulics department in our engineering division, as well as support from PPMD um, and our program management division. 
Um, and so we've got staff that support us um, in a number of different divisions, and we do get a lot of uh, staff assistance from planning division. And then we also work very collaboratively with other districts. So anytime that we need extra assistance and our staff maybe are uh, spread a little thin or, you know, we want to build a relationship with a different district and uh, know that we have additional resources that we can reach out to, we will do that um, with support from a different district. And we've been known for doing that quite a bit. And we've really built some great relationships, particularly with Albuquerque District, San Francisco District, Los Angeles District. Um, we've been doing some really wonderful collaboration. What do you see as the most important role that uh, Flood Risk Management Program plays uh, specifically within the Sacramento District mission? One of the most important roles I think we play is really in maintaining those partnerships. I, you know, that's one of the things that's at the heart of, you know, the goals for the Army Corps of Engineers is maintaining those strategic partnerships. And the flood risk management program and specifically Silver Jackets gives us an avenue to maintain those partnerships through the entire flood risk management life cycle. So where a particular project um, in a different aspect of the Army Corps of Engineers, typically will focus on just one part of the flood risk management cycle. For example, emergency management will really focus on recovery or on response. And we can actually provide support through the entire flood risk management program life cycle, which actually brings me back to this other part of our uh, organizational structure, which is external to the Army Corps of Engineers. So I spoke a little bit about our internal structure, but external to the Army Corps of Engineers, I think it's important for folks to know that we really look to the state as the lead for the Silver Jackets teams that we're a part of. So I like to say that Silver Jackets is like a train and Army Corps of Engineers are like in the caboose. Um, but we put the state at the head. And so they're going to you know, help direct us where the tracks are going. And then we try to get all the partners onto the train that can look like locals and state. And so we've got really a robust leadership staff for our California team. It's one of our most complex nationwide, the California state team. And then the actual state lead, and this is important, that the state lead is led out of the California Department of Water Resources. So we look to California Department of Water Resources to determine what projects we're going to be focusing on. And so through a collaborative process of hearing ideas from all our state and local partners, um, we really look to Chris Williams and Hillary Mann, who are our state lead and our state deputy. And then they very closely coordinate with Solomon Miranda, who's our Southern California lead. That that really, I think, really highlights what you're talking about with some of the strategic partnerships. Exactly. Yeah? Exactly. Let's, uh, I want to back up just a little bit here. You've mentioned the term silver jackets a couple of times. Can you explain that a little bit more? What is that? Where does that term come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So silver jackets, the name, it's intended to get people wondering, what does that mean? And so, you know, the story goes back to when there's a disaster, all of the different agencies would show up at the disaster, each in their own colored jacket. Army Corps of Engineers shows up in their red jackets. FEMA shows up in their blue jackets. Um, everyone has their unique color. And that I think that symbolizes the focus that they have on meeting the mission for their agency. Um, but really what Silver Jackets is meant to do is help us to, to think. You can imagine it's like we all have a silver lining in our jacket or I, I pass out pins with our Silver Jacket emblem and encourage people to wear those and just to think when they're wearing it that really it's a reminder we're all part of the same team. 
our common mission is to reduce flood risk, to protect lives and uh, minimize economic damages. And so keeping that reminder that we're all on the same team. So this Silver Jackets, it's a program that brings together federal, state, and local partners keeping us focused on that common vision of reducing flood risk and working collaboratively to do that. I wonder if you could share a a case study of a current or recent project that kind of flies under the radar. I know you talked about most of your projects do, but something that doesn't get a lot of the public attention that, that some of the big, you know, dam raises Folsom dam and Isabella dam get. Yeah, no, that's it's such a great question. And as I was preparing for this, I had a lot of trouble picking just one. So I've I have a couple here. Um, so if we have time, I'll, I'll highlight those. But I want to they, they each speak to different aspects of what the program can do. So the first is one that I'm managing and really passionate about, and I think speaks to how we're able to help small communities in a unique way that maybe most people aren't aware the Army Corps of Engineers can help. So we're currently helping the Thule River Indian tribe of the Thule River Reservation. Um, So a need was identified that basically this tribe has a casino inside their community and they have a road next to a river and that road is getting frequently flooded, but they have no idea what the frequency is or what to do about it. And so they got in touch with us and we're doing a flood inundation map study. So we're figuring out the frequency and providing some recommendations on a path forward of, um, you know, some options of like what could be done next to explore this issue more. So this level is a sort of a, a... an evaluation of the problem. Um, But one of the real challenges with this road is it's their main evacuation route, getting in and out of the community, and it's flooding frequently, Um, especially with these bridges and then having a casino, you're having people from outside the area coming in. Um, And so it, it, it is a very serious issue and very good that the tribe is interested in learning more and trying to take steps to figure out how to get support to get this issue resolved. So another one that I, I like to highlight that I think is, is very impressive and I'm proud of is the assistance that we provided to the Skull Valley Goshoot tribe. Um, so this was a, a, another small tribe that was experiencing alluvial fan flooding and they didn't know what to do about it and they didn't know what the extent of the flooding was. So first we started with a floodplain management plan. We helped. Can, can, can we can we pump the brakes and yes. explain what you call it, alluvial fan flooding? Oh, excellent question. Yes, I didn't know what that was either when I actually started. <laughs> Started. Even my, my first project I was managing, I had to learn what it was. Peter Blodgett, our subject matter expert, he explains this so well and so simply. Basically, it's like, imagine there was a community built on the floor. Okay, I'm going to give you like an example so you can imagine it. There's a community built on the floor and you've got a table and you're going to tilt your table um, up and you're going to take a cup of water and you're going to pour it and you're going to try to guess which of those houses that are built on your floor right at the edge of your table are going to get wet. It's extremely difficult to predict, right? And that's a flat table. Now, imagine that's a very rough table. You're gluing some rocks on that table and you're going to pour that water and you're going to try to guess where it's going to go. So what these communities look like in real life is usually their homes built at the base of mountains. Um, and those mountains may be softer material, a softer sand, or they can be coarse. But typically the flooding is less frequent. And there's a misconception that because, oh no, 
you know, last time it flooded, it only flooded like the right side of that baseball field. And I'm on the left side and I'm like over a couple streets. So I'm not at risk of flooding. But if you come back to that example from our subject matter expert, Peter Blodgett, and you're thinking about pouring a glass of water on a slightly shifted table, it's like a triangle when that water goes. And that water really could go in any part of that triangle, but it's not likely to hit the entire triangle every time. So people that are at risk of this type of flooding really may see very different results with different events. And so it's an extremely difficult type of flooding to manage, particularly with public perception. But there's also a lot of technical difficulties associating with managing that flood risk that make it very difficult. Um, and so it's really helpful to get technical expertise like those at the Army Corps of Engineers or, you know, from another source to try to figure out what can be done in those areas. And of course, a big plug, uh, if there's an option to not develop in an alluvial fan, um, that of course keeps the consequence lower by not putting more people at risk. All right. So I interrupted your your example, your case study. This was your second one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so Skull Valley Goshu Tribe, very small tribal community looking for assistance, trying to manage an extremely difficult type of flooding. Um, and with tribes, you know, often they have a piece of land and they're committed to that land. So they're not they're not moving or their community isn't moving. So then what can be done? Um, and so we went in, we did a floodplain management plan. Uh, and then we followed that up with flood inundation mapping. This was all done through floodplain management services, smaller, smaller dollar value interagency projects. And through that and through the collaborative partnerships that were established, we identified that NRCS had a program that could help them. And so we worked collaboratively with the tribe, with other partners, and with NRCS, and ultimately participated in the process that secured them a $3.1 million grant to try to get them some boots on the ground, how to physically change this um, alluvial fan flood issue that they've got. So that's now well underway. Interesting. And, and NRCS stands for what? Natural Resources Conservation Service. They're with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they provide technical assistance to farms and other private landowners and managers. Um, and so typically I think of them as helping with our EWP program. Um, you're going to ask me what that stands for, too. Um, emergency watershed protection program. Um, and so basically they can help some of these small communities with implementable solutions. So where through the Silver Jackets program or some of the other planning assistance to states programs that we have, we can assist with the planning portion. Um, the Natural Resource Conservation Service can often help with more of the implementation side of these smaller projects where there's not a federal interest um, in any sort of federal construction. Yeah, it sounds like the Corps of Engineers really uh, stretches in, in terms of working with a lot of different organizations, working with the public. And I'm wondering if that's something that a lot of people don't really get um, from the outside. But it, it's I think what you're explaining here really helps to lay that out. What do you think is is like one of the biggest myths or misconceptions that people have about USACE and interacting with the public? I think you were hitting on it there that often Army Corps, or maybe they think Army Corps of Engineers only does these big mega projects. 
you know, they go out to recreation sites, maybe they see the Army Corps of Engineers symbol, um, they think Army Corps of Engineers, you know, built and maintains that large structure, or maybe they've heard, I think often they hear about Army Corps of Engineers with regards to these larger projects. And so I think that we do really fly under the radar that through Silver Jackets and floodplain management services and planning assistance to states, we can provide direct assistance to communities. And it's it's a wonderful resource. Yeah, it really is. So, you know, both of those were very tangible and concrete communities that we were helping. But another aspect that we can help with, we get actually a a fair amount of uh, requests from the state where they have like a very difficult issue. So coming back to that alluvial fan, you know, issue, and I was saying how difficult it is. And a lot of our states are struggling with this. It's coming to their attention that they have a lot of communities that were built in alluvial fans. So what can be done about that? And it is very tricky. And they asked us to come up with a guide, a guide for communities. So they're doing outreach to communities. Communities are wondering what can be done. And so through Silver Jackets, this is a project that we're uh, 75% of the way through. So we're getting close to a finished product here that'll be ready to hit the press. But through a very collaborative process, working with both communities impacted by alluvial fan flooding, so the end users that are likely to use this product, as well as Utah Division of Emergency Management um, and many other partners to talk about collaboratively putting together a guide that's about to be published so that when outreach is done to communities and communities are finding out for the first time Yeah, like you said, alluvial fan flooding. What is that? And okay, that sounds overwhelming. Now what do we do about it? And so here's the guide that lays out different options that could be explored. Um, And so it offers a lot more than just the couple examples that I provided earlier, but it's wonderful to have a written guide and to have that federal funding made available to explore that type of issue and write this down because this will serve a lot of communities. That's awesome. I'm curious about your background. So you're the the program manager. So how do you describe kind of your career background? Project manager, engineer, what? Well, I I would identify, I I studied at a liberal arts uh, university, and I studied math and French literature. So maybe I don't quite fit into either of those boxes. (laughs) And then then I decided to, to move to El Salvador. And so I got a master's in education from El Salvador. I think that that really helps me with the public education and outreach portions of the program and also helping with mentoring some of the new staff and thinking about uh, change management um, and some of the the planning documents. But my first master's was in education and I taught geometry in El Salvador for a couple years and then uh, realized that classroom management wasn't my cup of tea. So (laughs) I was looking for something where I would be working with other other adults probably that that would come to the table and be interested in solving problems and so that I wouldn't have to spend like 60% of my energy trying to convince my audience that the problem that I was presenting to them was really worth solving we could all just like come to the table like okay we're on the same page we're going to get we're, let's dive into like getting the problem solved so i decided i wanted to become an engineer and i did some informational interviews with some of my parents friends and really wanted to make a difference in the world and so i was looking for something that would 
contribute in a critical area like food, water, shelter. And I was thinking specifically water resources or construction. And they recommended that I reach out to the Army Corps of Engineers. And so I actually looked in the white pages believe it or not, or the, the yellow what? pages. Wait, the what? <laughs> I know. It, like this, These are things <laughs> for all of you younger folks. There was a book back in the day. There was a book where a you where it book. had a big old book that had all of the agencies and different public service phone numbers. And I flipped to Army Corps of Engineers and I started there with a phone number. And for those of you who are in engineering division, you may know the legend Randy Redeen. So I magically got his phone number and he agreed to an informational interview with me. And so I came into the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, I was starting a master's degree at UC Davis in water resources engineering. And while I was in that informational interview, Stu Townsley, who's now at SPN, walked into the room and said, I'd like to have her in my section. And so that's how I ended up starting work at the Army Corps of Engineers as a uh, student career employee position. So that was the, the student intern program at the time uh, that transitioned into a permanent career. And I've been with the Corps over 15 years, still really enjoying it, um, loving working with communities and trying to think collaboratively about problem solving. And I do feel like I'm getting to make a difference in some of these critical civil works issues. That's and I really awesome. enjoy that. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you offer any advice uh, for anyone thinking about getting into uh, doing what you do or working with USACE at all? Yeah, absolutely. I would say resumes are really important. And um, to think about networking and uh, informational interviews and to ask parents, friends, or different connections that you might have about informational interviews, and then to really look out for opportunities to work or even volunteer in the field that you're interested in as you're going through school or after you graduate um, to get some experience and see what you like, what you don't like. Um, for me, I think one of the things that's led me to be really happy in my career is that I thought about it very holistically. So I thought not just about what subject I enjoy studying, but also about the lifestyle that I enjoy and the type of people that I enjoy being around. So one of the main reasons I actually chose to become an engineer, and I would say I am a people person, which not all engineers, I think, identify that way, but I really enjoy spending time around engineers. And so that was part of what motivated me to become an engineer and to want to bring my unique, unique skills to the table to contribute to this collaborative problem solving. And I feel like I've gotten to do that at the Army Corps of Engineers. I'm curious, has there been somebody who has had like a really big impact on you, either professionally or personally, to kind of get you where you are today? Yeah, Mosin Tavana. So Mosin Tavana is actually, um, many of those listening to this podcast with Army Corps of Engineers may know Mosin personally, as I had the pleasure of getting to know him. Um, so he was my mentor in the operations division in the flood risk, flood protection and navigation section. Um, so after working under Stu Townsley, I ended up uh, working very closely with uh, Mosin Tavana. And so he was a, a personal mentor. He became a very good friend. Um, and I just learned a lot from him. Um, he definitely taught me patience. Like one of the, the concrete examples, we, we walked a lot of levees together. We did levee inspections and he 
taught me to be a detective when I was out in the field. And so like, for example, we'd be there interacting with a non-federal partner. They'd be telling us the story of that area and what flooding happened or didn't happen. And then he would look at the ground and he would see how the dirt settled or where there were trails. And then he'd ask more poignant questions about that that would lead to layers of the story that thus far hadn't been shared. Or we'd look at details in the closing of the different closure structures for pipes passing through the levee and get into those types of details. So he had a real eye for detail and a way of pulling the story out of the non-federal partner in in a a really pleasant and like connection promoting way. Um, And so that was really nice. He also taught me some of the, the ebbs and flows of the federal work cycle and how certain work can, you know, become very urgent at times, or maybe um, become less urgent at times. And so just realizing that this is all part of a cycle, and that these things come and go. Um, And I think that was very closely connected with the patients. And also, he really taught me the value of listening to and respecting the points of view of our non-federal partners. Yeah, sounds like an amazing mentor. He is an amazing mentor. Uh, Do you have a favorite book or an author that you would like to share? Maybe something, again, either regarding kind of your, your choice of career field or something completely outside of that. You know, one of the, one of my favorites um, is Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. Um, And so it's, it's one I studied under Jay Lund at UC Davis when I did my master's in water resource engineering. Um, So it was a book that I read in one of his um, master's level classes. And it was also one that Stu Townsley recommended. Um, And so when I was really early working at the core, uh, one of the things that Stu had me do was read this book, uh, think about the different aspects that are in in the book, um, particularly about the climate, the climate of California, how that compares to climates around the world in some surprising ways, uh, maybe related to the title of the book. It's a bit of a desert, but we've been taming it and using engineering to make it something other than a desert. Um, And so just sort of remembering those roots. And then uh, he asked me to go around to other employees and talk to them about what I was learning and how that applied to the work that we were doing at the Army Corps of Engineers. So I really appreciated that forward thinking, uh, mentorship, and thinking about, you know, how to build not just for that moment, but how to build a really strong base uh, of knowledge for employees moving forward. And that's definitely some of some things that I've taken away from Stu Townsley as I mentor new staff as they come onto the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a great book. Very cool. Listen, I want to be respectful of your time, and we're running a little bit um, short on that. So I would like to, before I let you go, uh, I would like to get into uh, the Proust questionnaire. Are you familiar with the Proust questionnaire? No. Okay. Marcel Proust was a French writer back in the early 1900s who believed that in answering uh, some of these questions that he came up with, that an individual reveals his or her true self. Pretty harmless questions, I promise, but um, you really just kind of need to answer with the first thing that pops into your head. You game? Game. All right. Let's go for it. I'll just ask you a few of these. So the first one I'll ask you is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? My idea of perfect happiness is drinking a, like a smoothie, a fruit smoothie, some, a nice cold beverage while sitting on an island in Belize. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. We're at in Belize. Uh, key Cocker. All right. I digress. Um, what is the quality you most like in a person? Good listener. 
This is me listening for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that quality in you. <laughs> okay, which talent would you most like to have? Ability to fly was what came to my head first. <laughs> I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Would you like uh, the ability to like to fly an aircraft or to fly like a bird? To fly like a bird. Yeah, yeah. I think we could all kind of like that. That'd be kind of <laughs> cool. What do you consider to be your greatest achievement? Um, you know, I would say my greatest achievement thus far is working on the International Levy Handbook. So I was selected by headquarters um, to lead the chapter on operations and maintenance. And this was while I was working at the Army Corps of Engineers. And so I led a team of 40 to 50 international experts. Um, and this was when I was still very early in my career at the Corps. So I was sort of a you know, very green and leading these experts and ultimately the one responsible for getting the entire chapter written uh, for the International Levy Handbook Operations and Maintenance. Very cool. All right. One last question. This may be the most telling question of all of these. And, and Proust may not have actually written this one. I may have thrown this one in. Who is your favorite superhero? My favorite superhero, Superman. Why? Because he can fly. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. <laughs> it all comes back around. Awesome. Well, I think Proust would approve. Uh, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. It's been great to learn more about what your program uh, works on within the Sacramento District. Just thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It was a pleasure being here with you today. Many thanks once again to Rachel Oriana for joining us on this episode of Digging Deep. Be sure to check out the written podcast description for more information on some of the resources shared during this podcast. And of course, we'd absolutely appreciate it if you smash the like button or the five stars, the heart, or whatever else is available to tell us what you think about the show. See you next time. Come on.